Now turning with me uh, to the Gospel of Matthew as we uh, return after a uh, brief uh, reprieve over these past few weeks, we return to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that greatest sermon ever preached. We'll give attention to our Savior's own words this morning on this particular topic. If you recall here in chapter 6, Jesus has been addressing those acts of piety that are expected among the people of God, be it almsgiving or prayer, and here fasting. And yet he shows that there is both a right way to do these things as well as a wrong way. Now we talk about, or he talks about, and tells us of the nature of fasting. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. Our Lord himself speaking, saying that when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. But they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's Word. Let's go for the Lord and ask that He'd bless the reading, but especially the preaching of it. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, this morning we come before You uh, sitting under the authority of Your Son who speaks to us from heaven. We pray that You would give us ears to hear those things that Your Word clearly says, and that by Your Spirit You would convict us where we have fallen short, uh, and that You would redirect our affections to pursue You uh, in this noble task. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here as we uh, come to the topic on fasting, I think all of us would uh, admit that this is not a common practice that we see uh, these days, at least not in terms of religious practice. Of course, what do I mean by fasting? In fact, I, I think it's so uh, rare, perhaps, that we might, even, might not even know what is meant by it. By fasting, I mean simply the abstention of food or drink for a set period of time as an act of piety. Of course, when we put it like that, it sounds either too foreign or perhaps even too superstitious. If at all in the modern world, fasting is relegated to other tasks. Uh, and yet, isn't it something how we even describe our own eating habits? What is it that you have in the morning? Breakfast where the fast is broken. So here, at least, uh, instinctively, I think we understand part of it. But even in the modern world, fasting is not really seen as a religious act. It might be used in political ways. You think of Gandhi or of others who had used hunger strikes and fasts as a means uh, of uh, political advancement of particular political causes. Perhaps you might be familiar with intermittent fasting as a dietary fad. But when it comes to fasting as a religious duty, Scripture, in fact, has much to say about it. It is a particular means whereby the people seek the Lord on special occasions. And yet by Jesus' day, the practice of this had become perverted. And here we find in our passage this morning that Jesus confronts not the practice, not the legitimacy of fasting. He does not say stop fasting. 
What are you doing? That's legalistic. Rather, what he addresses is the perversion of the practice and so orders our hearts to consider why it is that we fast, that when we fast, we would do it aright. There's three things I'd like us to consider this morning. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of fasting. It might do well given how uh, foreign a concept this is, even within the modern church, to take a step back and consider what the Bible says about it. And secondly, I'd like us to consider the manner of fasting and how not to fast. As Jesus addresses those wrong ways and approaches and motivations of doing it. And then finally, we'll consider the manner of how to fast, as we see in verses 17 and 18. So the matter of fasting, and then how not to fast, verse 16, and then how to fast, verses 17 and 18. Well, again, we speak of fasting as abstinence from food and drink for a particular period. And again, you see in Jesus' own language, he assumes the legitimacy of the practice. He does not say if you fast. He actually says when. There's an assumption that it will be practiced uh, to some extent or at certain times and periods. And as we consider what the Bible says, we find that there are a number of occasions when the people of God, either individually or corporately, would practice these things. I think perhaps when we think of people fasting, we think of the most significant fasts in Scripture, of Moses or Elijah or Jesus who would fast for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water in the wilderness. Uh, Events that signaled particular uh, advancements in the history of redemption, which I don't think those particular 40-day fasts are prescriptive for the whole people of God. I think that they are, um, in those cases, particular moments that highlight the significance of what is about to transpire. You think of Moses who fasts for 40 days atop of Mount Sinai as the giving of the law comes. Or Elijah as he's about to prepare uh, his confrontation with the wicked uh, rulers of the northern kingdom. Or of Jesus as he goes to confront the serpent in the wilderness. But we find those aren't the only occasions that Scripture speaks of these. More often, we find uh, that this is a corporate affair. You think of not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. In Acts chapters 13 and 14, there are two particular occasions when the church gathers together to fast and to pray. In Acts chapter 13, they fast and pray that uh, in preparation for appointing missionaries to be sent out in this new mission to the Gentiles. And in Acts 14, we are told that the church, when they had appointed elders for the churches, it was accompanied by prayer and fasting. This is why actually even in our own denomination, when you read our form of government and our directory of public worship, one of the encouragements that every church is called to is the day before a new pastor is ordained or installed into that congregation, that the church is encouraged to set a time, a day devoted to fasting and prayer. And again, we find that these aren't the only occasions. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, for instance, as the threat of uh, the Moabite and Ammonite coalition against uh, the people of God uh, looms on the horizon, King Jehoshaphat uh, calls for a day of fasting, praying that the Lord would deliver them from their adversaries. But we have to ask ourselves, what does fasting actually depict? If you love food as much as I do, the first thing that comes to mind 
when you think of abstaining from a meal is sadness. And certainly that's what it is in many ways. It's an image of mourning, an image of grief. The Hebrew idiom for fasting, such as in Psalm 35, is that of afflicting the soul. Here we find that the practice can cover a number of periods. It could be just for a day. It could be for several days, depending upon the matter. It could be over a number of circumstances. Again, either individually or corporately. You think of uh, when David's infant son falls sick and he's on the verge of death. David fasts and prays. Though he prays for his son to live, and though he has fasted, the Lord in his sovereignty still says, no, and his son dies should remind us that fasting is not some type of incantation that forces God's hand. God is still sovereign over all things. Fasting in Scripture's context is not the equivalent of a hunger strike where so many kind of political revolutionaries will go on these hunger strikes hoping that somebody will act before they starve themselves to death. That is not what we see here. This is not the religious equivalent of a child throwing a temper tantrum in the middle of the grocery store, saying that they will not eat or do anything until their parent capitulates to their demands. That is not what we see going on in the act of fasting. You consider when Saul and Jonathan were slain in battle, the nation and the men mourn the death of their king. Fasting occurs over the threat and reality of disaster. You think of in Esther when the edict against the Jews is given and uh, the, the, the threatened execution of the people of God uh, lies over their head. It is said that the people of God with fasting and weeping and lamenting uh, lay in sackcloth and ashes, crying out to God for deliverance. When judgment befalls Jerusalem and the nation and the city is toppled, the prophet Nehemiah begins to weep and fast over the disaster that has taken place. Fasting, a depiction of the inner turmoil of the soul. Fasting occurs at the threat of not just disaster, but sin and judgment. You think of when Jeremiah pronounces judgment on the nation or when Jonah pronounces judgment on Nineveh. What are the people's responses in both cases? The king calls for a fast that the people might turn to God. They say, who knows, maybe the Lord will hear us. Maybe He will relent from this disaster. And yet, even in these cases, the prophets of old speak over and over again how this is not simply a mere outward spectacle. The prophet Joel says in chapter 2, rend your hearts and not your garments. This is not simply a practice of going through the motions. In other words, we would say that fasting vividly depicts what repentance looks like in the heart. You think of the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, where it speaks of how the whole nation, as they wait with bated breath for the high priest to return from Uh, where he had been inside the Holy of Holies, that he might come out and say that your sins have been forgiven for yet another year. While they await that sound, the declaration of pardon, they have been waiting for that declaration with fasting and with prayer. And of course, at the news and the heralding of the forgiveness of sins, that 
fasting is turned to feasting. A time of joy. And over and over again, we find in the Old Testament these, these passages where the people of God are called to fast. That fasting is described as humbling or afflicting oneself. We also see in the New Testament, regular acts of genuine piety are accompanied by fasting. You think of Anna in Luke chapter 2, the old widow who, until she was 84, did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Here we find that fasting is an embodied reminder that the Lord is worth pursuing more than our own earthly appetites. So if we could summarize in kind of short order the biblical teaching on fasting, we would say that the purpose of it is broadly for these three things. In seeking the Lord in times of trouble, be it personally, or as a congregation, or as a nation. We practice it on special occasions, such as preparation for the work of the ministry as new officers are set apart and installed to seek the advance of the gospel. And we also see the practice as it is done on occasion among individuals as they seek the Lord for His own sake. And yet how easy it is to do these practices ostensibly for these reasons, and yet find that our own sinful hearts twist and distort them, that we might shine the spotlight on ourselves rather than on the Lord to whom we ought to set all our affections. And so Jesus' concern here in this particular portion of His sermon at the Sermon on the Mount is addressing those matters of hypocrisy. You know, in the ancient world and in kind of ancient Greek theater, the uh, actors would often wear masks on stage. Uh, that hid who their true face was. Uh, what it was that they were on, doing on stage was a persona. It was all an act. It was very theatrical. And so they would be referred to as, the word there was, was, was hypocrite. And here Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. In other words, what is He saying? He says, this isn't a performance piece. This is not something that you're putting on display for the whole world to see. Look at how Jesus even describes um, the hypocrites. What is it they do to their face? They disfigure their face. And, and so that, and here's the purpose of why they do and practice these things, so that others might look upon them. Jesus, don't be like that. True religion is not devoid of outward practices. Here are things that Jesus is commending the people of God to continue doing, such as giving of alms, and then the uh, extended discussion on prayer. These are genuine acts of piety that are expected among the people of God. And yet these practices must flow from a properly sanctified heart. Over and over again in each of these situations in this sixth chapter, Jesus has said over and over again, do not be like the hypocrites. There is no place God has no place and no love for a theatrical religion. These people who contort their faces to let you know in how much agony they are because they have fasted for however long a period that they have done. It's an act of shameless self-promotion. 
As these hypocrites fast not to be godly, but to try to demonstrate and convince you that they are godlier than they perhaps really are. It's ostentatious in character. It's done for outward display. Again, Jesus is not doing anything new. He's echoing the very thing that the prophets have castigated the nation in this particular practice as well. In Jeremiah, for instance, the people of God were, were chastised and, and um, uh, instructed not to fast and to see it as a meritorious act, thinking that if I fast, the Lord will certainly answer my plea according to the dictates of how I want Him to answer my prayer. Jeremiah 14, the Lord says, I'm not here to do that. Some treat fasting as a lucky rabbit's foot. Certain going through the motions. You know, you think of the practice in other denominations during uh, what, when they celebrate uh, what they call Lent. What is it the thing that happens the night before Lent kicks off? You got Fat Tuesday. Get all your sinning out in a night before you have to abstain from it for 40 days. Right? Isn't it? The whole practice of Mardi Gras in New Orleans is, revolves around that idea and how antithetical that is to true piety and godliness. Well, let me just sin as much as I can so that way I can abstain and the Lord will love me. You're supposed to not sin anyway. And yet you're thinking, if I just do this, this act of religious uh, uh, devotion and just set aside 40 days or whatever and abstain from fill in the blank, then the Lord will hear me. And it's the very thing the prophets go after time and time and time again. The people of God were saying, the temple, the temple, the temple. They were going to religious worship. They were making their sacrifices. And they were living and doing whatever they wanted to do, however they well please. And the Lord says, you think you're using religious worship uh, as, if, uh, as a way to uh, uh, continue uh, to, to live a life of sin. But that is not what this is for. The affliction of the soul that you see in the practice of fasting is a time for self-examination and a time of, in, in particular, special occasions of mourning to reflect and see how can I turn to the Lord? What can I do? And we see in Isaiah 58, as we heard read earlier, when the people say, Lord, why are you not hearing us even though we're fasting? The Lord says, well, why are you even fasting? What's the motivation for doing it? You, you fast, you, you'll abstain from food and drink, and yet you strike your workers on the clock. Is that really the fat? Is that re really what this is about? What does the Lord care about more? We're reminded time and time again that love for God and love for man go hand in hand. As First John chapter two says, "Whoever says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother, he is still in darkness." And yet, over and over again, we see these people say, "I am good. I am right with the Lord because I perform my religious duties." And the Lord says, "Look at your heart. This is no lucky charm to allow you to keep acting as you have been." I think Jesus' own words here, even as he addresses a practice, we uh, perhaps don't practice perhaps even enough. And yet we find these self-evaluative questions 
that Jesus impresses upon us. Do we practice this? And if we do, why? Do we do it to let others know how religious we are? Do we do it to let to try to leverage God into getting what we want? Do we treat it as a lucky rabbit's foot? Jesus' response to any of these motivations here is that is not true fasting. It's not the proper motivation. The Lord will not hear you. You know, we have to ask ourselves that if this is not done for the purpose of, of theatricality, or if it's not done to try to merit God's favor, or to have you know, a, a, an ace in our back pocket, what is this for? Why are we doing this? How should we practice this? And that is what our Savior gets at in verses 17 and 18. So he reminds us that this uh, the matter of fasting must be accompanied by its proper manner. And the manner is a matter of the heart. Remember our scriptural purpose. Uh, the scriptural backdrop for thinking through this practice. It is to seek the Lord in times of trouble or on special occasions, such as preparations for the work of the ministry, or even to seek the Lord for His own sake. We're reminded, as I've said already, Jesus is not doing anything new here. He again asks over and over again, why are you doing this? That's why we had the reading of the law from Zechariah chapter 7 this morning, where Zechariah the prophet asked the exact same question to the people of God. Why are you doing this? You know, I think many of us would want to go, well, oh, we shouldn't practice it at all. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus says, when you practice this, there's an assumption that it will be practiced to some extent. But we have to understand its proper context. Fasting still expresses dependence. It still can reflect true grief. But rather we find that it reflects a godly form of grief rather than that worldly grief. Right? If fasting vividly portrays true repentance, then accompanying it should be the fruit of true repentance, such as kindness and mercy and joy. Think of what the prophet Zechariah says. As the word of the Lord comes to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Prophet Isaiah addresses the same thing. What is true fasting? Is not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness to comfort those who are in mourning. If fasting is something that depicts a denial of the flesh, it is a denial of the flesh for a particular end. It's the denial of your own desires and wants and comforts for the sake of loving and serving one another. Is not this the fast I have chosen, Isaiah says, to pour yourself out for the hungry and to satisfy the desire of the, afflict of the afflicted. That's what our Savior's getting at here. He's saying, why are you doing this? Again, addressing that heart motivation. Do not do this to be noticed by men. God cares nothing for theatricality and true religion. What He cares for is a matter of the heart and whether there is true change and true devotion to Him. It doesn't matter what other people think about you. 
doesn't matter if anybody, uh, you know, the the purpose is not to let everybody know when you're fasting from a particular meal. In fact, Jesus here describes basically saying, go out of your way to ensure people don't know when that's happening. Because you're fasting for an audience of one in pursuit of the Lord, denying the self and seeking the face of God. Here our Savior calls us to recalibrate our hearts and pursue Him, and in doing so to love our neighbor as herself, not to make it about us. As an aside, I should point out here that nowhere in Scripture does it command us to practice it on certain days, such as no meat on Fridays during certain seasons of the year. It's not prescribed as a law, nor is it ever prescribed for how long this should be done. In fact, it might be advisable for some not to do so, such as some of the elderly or if you're sick, perhaps the diabetic. It might not be wise to abstain from food for too long because of those things. And yet we see there is no, you know, 11th commandment says this is for, thus says the Lord, this is for how long you should fast. This is for how long you should abstain. This is when you should do it. Rather, we should see this as a kind of volitional act that when or if you are able to, to do it for the right reasons, to seek the Lord and not to draw attention for yourself with proper motivation and understanding as to why you're doing this. And to know this, that our pursuit is not an earthly reward. Our pursuit is a heavenly reward. And isn't that the goal? To train our hearts and bodies to seek the Lord while He may be found. Not to try to merit His approval by our outward actions. As if the Lord says, oh, you abstained from eating a Big Mac today. Maybe I'll take special care and notice of your prayers today. Rather, this is a practice where we learn to reorder our hearts and ask, what are our priorities? Is it our own creature comforts? Or is it the Lord Himself? That we might with the psalmist say, who do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing in heaven or on earth I desire beside you. And having, as an act of private piety, set aside particular times or seasons where you say, I'm going to deny these things that I absolutely love so that I might pursue the Lord. And you know, I'm just not going to tell anybody about it because my goal is the pursuit of God Himself. And this is what Jesus is getting at. This is the heart of the matter. Why are we performing these religious duties? And it goes back to the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All your heart. And that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our Savior tells us here that if we do these things in secret, when nobody else is watching, then the Father, your Father, who sees in secret, He will reward you with the gift of Himself. That anyone who seeks the Lord is given the great assurance that He will be found as He is given to us through a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. 
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we give attention to Your Word, we pray that You would uh, sanctify our hearts, that we might pursue You and love You above all things, that we would find nothing in heaven or on earth to be more desirable than our God who reigns above, Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.